the JW Forwardcast, the podcast that helps former Jehovah's Witnesses pick up the pieces, put them back together, and turn them into something awesome. So how's everyone been? I hope you've had a good month. My month has been good but busy. I've been travelling a lot. Um, Travelling for holiday, I've been travelling for work, and now I'm back home for a short while, but there will be more moving around and travelling. I don't actually mind. I quite enjoy travelling. I think I'm quite a restless person. But I could definitely do with a bit of a break, I think, before I see another airport, Um, especially in a work context, because the thing with travelling for work is you think in your head, oh, this is brilliant, I'll be going to these, these places, I get to explore all these interesting cities and locations, and the company will pay for it. What actually happens is you fly from the airport to another airport, then get a taxi to the hotel, then a taxi to the office, and you cycle back and forth between office and hotel, and <laughs> then you then you uh, then you fly home. So you don't always get a chance to look around. Sometimes you do, um, but yeah, it's not always as glamorous as you were hoping for, and it's usually a lot more exhausting than you thought it would be. But other than that, I've been having a pretty good month. Um, I've also been attacked with swords this month, which is fun. Wait, wait a second. You're saying what? What do you mean attacked with swords? Well. I'll leave you hanging on that, and we'll come back to that later. But first, a little housekeeping. So, first of all, I'd like to give a big forwardcast shout-out to a new patron supporter. Uh, Brace yourself for a terrible accent. A big shout-out to... Y'all ain't right. Did I get that correct? I've tried to get a southern accent into there. Um, I've been assured that that's... um, that's kind of a southern colloquialism of saying someone's a bit crazy. Hey, man, y'all ain't right there. That's uh, This is a terrible southern accent, and I do apologize from the bottom of my heart. I've been trying to watch the TV show Justified to get a bit of Appalachian uh, twang to my voice, but uh, in fact, is, are the Appalachians even in Georgia? You know what, my... I'm re- I'm apologising ahead of time now for all the the people in the south that I've offended, the people in Georgia that I've offended, and the people in the Appalachians because I don't know if they're um, if the mountains are in Georgia. Uh, my ignorance is shining through here, but yes, um, a big shout out to that uh, that uh, patron supporter. Um, and yeah, apparently um, saying y'all ain't rats a way of saying you're a little bit crazy. And you know what? Yeah, we are all a little bit crazy in our own way, aren't we? <laughs> So, uh, yeah, big thank you. And if you'd like to uh, become a patron of the Forwardcast, um, get a shout out on the show and access to lots of other cool rewards, such as uh, Ask Me Anything episodes, um, episodes of the Patreon exclusive show, The Covert Files, um, handwritten thank you cards from me, um, film commentaries um, from myself and Alice Cheshire. We sit down and watch the film uh, Apostasy back to back and give our commentary as we go. You can get hold of all of that on uh, Patreon slash Covert Fade. And a big thank you to all our current supporters and also to our supporters who have to remain uh, anonymous because like me, if their their name actually came out, they would be shunned. So I always ask people's permission first before I give them a shout out, but a big shout out to our anonymous supporters as well. Uh, Something else I want to mention is the uh, iTunes reviews for the show. Another way you can support the show, if you found it useful, is to go over to iTunes and give us a uh, star rating, um, which you can literally, if you've got the podcast app in front of you, you can just scroll to the show and you've got an option to give it a rating of one to five stars. Uh, We currently have 11 ratings, um, so maybe we can boost that up to 12 
for the next show. We also have four written reviews on iTunes where people have left um, actual written reviews of the show, uh, which again is really helpful. And thank you so much for that. Um, And if people uh, leave any new reviews um, before we record the next episode, I will read those reviews out on the um, on the next episode of the show to say thank you. And the the reason why these are important is that the podcast algorithm on the Apple um, iTunes store promotes podcasts that have high reviews and that have a lot of written reviews. So it's a great way to help more people find the show. Um, So it'd be great if you could help us out that way. So I mentioned getting attacked with swords. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, being serious. I have started to practice uh, HEMA, H-E-M-A, Historical European Martial Arts. Um, I got invited to go, basically, by uh, one of my housemates who was curious about it and wanted to go. And I've always been curious about doing it, but I've never had the chance to get involved. And it's kind of part archaeology, part martial arts, because you think to yourself, well, how do we know how people used to fight with swords in like the 13th and 14th centuries? Well, it turns out there's a lot of surviving manuscripts um, and there, is, there are kind of like archaeological records of the way people used to use swords. And what they've done is they've studied these texts and then put it all into action. And Because obviously sometimes it's unclear as to actually what the texts mean. Well, a great way to find that out is to literally start fighting and find out. So what ends up happening is you're going to something that's part history lesson um, and part combat sport. And you get padded up, you get your, your, defense, you get your fencing mask on. Um, someone's banging on my door. That might be happening above me. I don't know if you can hear that in the background. Um, and you get your fencing mask and you get your padded gloves and you get your either... Um, hard plastic sword or you can actually use blunt steel swords for more advanced students and what happens so far is i've you the session is you get shown a a couple of techniques to practice then you all partner up and you practice those techniques and uh, i've been also doing it um apparently there isn't sparring at this class but apparently they do do proper sparring once you get more further along so yeah i've been literally learning to get medieval on your ass um, the only thing that I'm worried about is that I'll start looking at movie sword fights that I really love and start seeing all the mistakes or start being a kind of person who go, no, oh, you know what? You wouldn't actually do that in real life. And I'll become one of those infuriating people. It's already happened a little bit now. Um, when I'm kind of like, um, watching something that involves any kind of ground fighting, um, for Brazilian jiu-jitsu or any kind of knife fighting on movies with like Filipino Kali or anything like that, I'm sort of seeing all the mistakes and things you wouldn't really do, but they're things that the actors, they have to do in the fight choreography, otherwise the fight's over in 10 seconds. Um, And that's one thing with movie sword fights, is movie sword fights will go on for ages, whereas in reality, a real sword fight's probably over in like 10 seconds, you know, you're in, you're done. But that doesn't make for a very interesting fight scene for a movie. So, yeah, I suppose there's an element of... um, an element of suspending disbelief, which uh, you have to bring into it. But anyway, so yeah, that's that's my uh, <laughs> that's my interesting sword fighting story, and I'll let you know how that goes. Uh, I just hope I don't get skywalked or something and lose a hand. My guest today is Sean Holland, uh, probably better known by his stage name, Alexander Rhodes. Uh, Sean has been uh, a club DJ. He's been a music producer. He's a poet. Um, and he's also a spoken word performer, and he's currently touring his one-man show, One Foot in the Rave. 
And One Foot in the Rave is incredibly successful and it deals with a pivotal moment in his life because Sean also used to be a Jehovah's Witness. And the the show zeroes in on a, a key moment in his life that kind of, when he was going down a very bad part of, um, kind of very down a very bad path, it was a moment in his life that kind of reset him and it enabled him to bounce back again. Um, so we talk about that. We actually talk about a wide range of things from his growing up as a witness, his decision to leave, life in the 90s clubbing scene in the UK. Um, we talk about poetry, spoken word, art. It's a really interesting show. Oh, and by the way, if you think this uh, month's episode sounds even better than usual, that's because Sean actually um, helped me out a bit with the audio production. Turns out that um, working with someone who's an experienced audio engineer and music producer has some audio benefits as well. So thanks, Sean, for uh, making this particular episode of the podcast sound just that little bit better than usual. My guest today is Sean Holland, also known by his stage name, Alexander Rhodes. Sean is a poet, he's a DJ, he's a creative writer and a performance artist whose current show, One Foot in the Rave, is touring the UK. One Foot in the Rave is described in the following ways in the press pack. A disillusioned 23-year-old evangelist preacher finds himself ejected from a controlling cult and onto the ecstasy-fueled dance floors of 90s clubland. He is not prepared for what he finds. That sounds like a heck of a story. Sean Holland, welcome to the Forwardcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. Cool. No, thank you for coming on, especially as I understand you've you had dental surgery relatively recently, so we, we may or may not lose <laughs> you halfway through, depending on the <laughs> Yeah, if, I, if it goes silent, it's because I've killed over. Yeah, I had a, a, a traumatic tooth extraction this morning. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, well, thanks for soldiering on like a trooper, and uh, hopefully we can, we can get this done without you passing out. So... <laughs> Cool. So there's, there's, there's lots I wanted to talk to you about because you've got a really interesting story to tell. In fact, it's so interesting, you've actually been able to turn it into uh, a one-man show which is touring at the moment called One Foot in the Rave. And so what I thought we could do is there's, there's loads I want to talk to you about because you've been a DJ, you're, you know, you're currently forming creative works and working creatively. And your, your story, I think, many people would relate to, especially from the XJW world, because leaving the Jehovah's Witnesses is usually pretty traumatic to some form or another. And I know that you've been able to kind of take that experience of leaving and turn it, sort of focus your creative energies on it and almost turn it into something positive and something that let people look at their own, you know, their own lens and their own issues that they focus, that they deal with. Could you just give us some, maybe like a a quick overview of sort of what your life was like as a Jehovah's Witness and, and what it was like to leave? Yeah, of course. I, I mean, you know, it's taken a long time to get to this point, really. Um, I was under 10 uh, when my parents became Jehovah's Witnesses. And therefore, you know, there was quite a quick flip there from what might be considered, you know, a normal life, whatever that is. I know that's relative into this new way of living. You know, it was kind of uh, although you know I'm 51 now, so this is <laughs> I'm going back quite a long way. But um, you know, it was almost a case of one day coming home from school and being sat down and told, "Okay, um, there's going to be no 
Christmas this year uh, and we're going to be starting a, a thing called a Bible study and you know it was literally like that kind of wow. transition there was no there was no warning that this thing was building up um, and I think that that was because my father was having a Bible study in secret for quite a while before actually announcing to the family that this is now what we're doing um, okay. So for me and my siblings, it was like kind of instantaneous. We're doing this now. Get on board with it. So that was strange. I'm probably sure that most families don't go in that way. There's probably kind of a a gentle ramp up. But, um, you know, Mm. uh, people are different and they behave and and, and have different ways of dealing with things. And that's how it was. so that was an you know uh, quite a culture shock straight away but as far as being in the Jehovah's Witnesses you know we kind of we embraced it as kids on the whole i think my my feelings about it like i just remember sitting at meetings you know almost in pain with the anxiousness to get out and just go and play football or you know see my friends or yeah yeah, and you know just kind of it it was palpable um but going through the motions and and just doing what you're told ultimately um you know my father's quite a strong character he was a disciplinarian before we went in to the jehovah's witness thing and and so you did what you were told Mm. or there would be consequences so that's what we did so I think then fast forwarding, my way of dealing with things probably as a child was uh, adapt and survive. So I I kind of very quickly, I found positive reinforcement when I did the talks and the Bible studies. And if we were answering, you know, I was getting positive reinforcement back. And so you keep doing that hmm. when you're craving attention or, you know, whatever from family or or you know just looking for some kind of identity people like it when i do this i'll keep doing this Mm. that's that's how i see it now probably didn't obviously have that kind of level of understanding at the time um so by 23 i found myself in a situation and obviously from your reading of the short copy of the play that's where the play uh, Mm. starts at 23 um, I found myself in a situation where I was married to a Jehovah's Witness. Um, we'd moved down to Devon and I was already a ministerial servant. I was on my way to being an elder and the pressure from that quarter was growing, you know. Mm. And I then started experiencing what I now know to be cognitive dissonance. So that was really, that's the turning point and that's where the, the play kind of picks up. What was it that made you start to feel that cognitive dissonance? Do you remember any one specific thing or was it a general f- sort of gathering feeling that something wasn't right? It it was an underlying feeling that something wasn't right. It was, it, being completely honest, I mean, I got married at uh, about 19 to somebody who I'd met maybe seven months before. Um, obviously, there's a lot of... Uh, there's kind of a lot of growing um, confusion of feelings and so on surrounding the whole morality of the Jehovah's Witness organisation. When you're younger, uh, there is no sex before marriage. There is no... It's a very 
sheltered and in, in, in our case kind of not discussed area you know nobody was talking about it or um obviously we went through the whole youth book thing and blah 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 but i found that deeply deeply uncomfortable um and yeah <laughs> that book is an exercise in torture <laughs> it is yeah absolutely it is i'm glad i'm not the only one it feels like that yeah <laughs> um so now you know i kind of see getting married was a combination of two things one uh, the growing sexual tension and misunderstanding of my own kind of sexuality, if you like, mm-hmm. um, uh, and in order, you know, getting married will resolve some physical need. Um, but also, I think trying to escape that kind of oppressive. Uh, I, I felt that getting married was also a level of where I could establish some freedom, you know, because I lived at home right up until I was married. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, that wasn't a conscious thought. That was probably what I realise now, looking back, you know, and having debated and, and meditated on this and thought, well, you know, I can see this path. And also, you know, talking to um, people in terms of therapy discussions and so on. Um, so, yeah, breaking breaking out and getting married put me into this situation where I was I was free to a sense, but then I had this ever-growing kind of uh, pressure then to kind of fulfill this life that I'd created for myself. And what I realised was I didn't want that life. Yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, getting married was one stepping stone and moving away to Plymouth was one stepping stone to freedom. And then the cognitive dissonance started coming when, as I grew between 19 and 23, as a person, I realised I'm not who I want to be. Mm. And I don't know who I want to be. Um yeah, and I popped, I guess. I think probably fair to say I had the first inklings of a nervous breakdown at 23. Um, well, you know, um, the growing pressure of having to do something or, or, or being on a trajectory to do something you don't want to do is very, it's very damaging. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of our listeners who'd be able to relate to that. I think the... Um Especially, uh, I think on a number of levels. I mean, firstly, the, the get the kind of the getting married very young because of that combination of like wanting to be free and also because of that, you know, growing sexual need and everything else. There's, there's I know a lot of XJWs who, who who will relate a similar story. In fact, I know when I when I was a JW, I mean, I was never married as a JW, but I knew a lot of my friends when they were very young would get married at like 19, 20, 21. And at the yeah. time, we'd all be like, oh, happy. And I look back now and I'm like, those people had nothing in common. Yeah. Um, yeah. And even, even, even though I know that some of those people, they had to stay together because of the, obviously the, the JWs do not allow you to divorce, except if there's, you know, if people have been sleeping around. I, you just know that people aren't happy. You can see it. And I, I would see the deterioration in some of those relationships before I left. And it wasn't because either of them were bad people. It was just that they married the person who should have been their first boyfriend or their first girlfriend. Exactly. That's, you know what I mean? That is uh, a process that you go through to grow. Yeah. Um, and it's not necessarily the right decision, you know, in terms of a long-term partner. Um, yeah. And and you can do each other damage as well. I mean, I I would say that still today I feel tremendous guilt uh, for my ex-wife for having, you know, up, married her, moved her down to Devon, and then left her effectively. Um, 
You know, she had her own very difficult path when she became a, to becoming a Jehovah's Witness anyway. And I, mm. I, I don't really go into the marriage too much on stage um, because I'm one, only one party to that thing. And, and mm. you know, I, I don't have her kind of blessing or <laughs> uh, yeah. permission to use that situation for... Um, I hesitate to say entertainment value, but certainly, you know, it's not really fair to put that on stage. Um, mm. So it, it is very much through one lens, um, my play. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's fair enough. Like you say, it's kind of, and this is the interesting thing about the play because you're kind of, I love this idea that you're telling your story of leaving and all the impact it had on you, you know, through a play. Um, and it seems like, like, so they sort of say so much about, you know, great art is like taking something that was painful and then turning it into something that's, you know, creative or inspiring or cathartic. Yeah. Um, was that, I mean, and we're going to sort of come back onto, cause I don't want to completely yeah. spoil the play or the events of your life, but can you give us like an idea of what then happens to you? So you're, you're, you're 23 and you're like realizing you've got this cognitive dissonance and you start leaving the Jehovah's Witnesses. What then happens to you? What's the root of your story that kind of takes you to being um, a performer, t- essentially telling your story on stage? When I very first um, left, there was kind of um a few months where, you know, obviously there was a lot of uh, pressure to go back to the marriage, which I actually did for another few months, but then left again. That was even harder to do it twice. Um, so dealing from that second point of leaving, um, I moved all of my stuff and myself into uh, a spare room of a guy I work with and just realized, I just realised I don't know anyone, you know. So I became mm. quite a hermit to begin with. And it's, obviously it's very isolating being in, in that situation. Mm. Uh, and I just remember sitting in that room, a single room, which was decorated like in probably the most depressing post-70s kind of <laughs> design <laughs> wallpaper and flocked wallpaper Ooh, and patterned yeah. floor and just thinking, oh my goodness, what am I doing? Yeah, is this I, was, I, know, I know become? the kind of decoration you mean. Yeah, I used to, <laughs> I used to see some of that as well. Yeah, um, and initially my answer was to turn to drink, having been stopped from doing all these things for many years. I chose to then go. Well, I'm out now. I'm going to indulge in everything so i remember getting drunk on my own Mm. i remember feeling bad about that like this isn't the way forward and then i got invited out uh to go out for a drink on the town by of all people my brother who at the time was ostensibly a jehovah's witness as well i should say actually i'm gonna i'm I'm gonna mention something i don't mention in the play as well that the thing that kind of really broke the connection with the jehovah's witnesses for me was um, because obviously you've got, you know, it's not just instant. Um, in that, just in that period, just before uh, going out for the first time, I actually phoned an elder. I got to such a low state, stuck in that room. Mm. I, you know, thought I need to speak to an elder. I need to speak to one of the elders I trust. So it's only a matter of weeks, really, bef- since I've left. And and I I rang through, and and he said, oh hi hi, you know. Um, Oh, I wasn't expecting to hear from you tonight. And and I said, Yeah, yeah. I just wondered if, you know, I really feel like I need to talk to you. And he went, Do you know what? I'm just just preparing a, a talk for the introduction 
talk for the service meeting. Is it all right if I give you a ring tomorrow? And <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm not being dramatic when I say that that was actually an evening where I, it was on my mind to go to the Tamar Bridge and jump off. Yeah. Um, and for me, I think that was the cord that severed that connection. And then I was all out, okay, I'm going to die with the rest of these people. That's what I'm going to do. So I went on that tip, and I know some don't, and I'm really glad that not everybody goes that way. But my thing was, if this world's going to go and everything's going to be destroyed with it, I don't want to live forever with those people. Mm. I'm, I'm going to go down with them, and I'll go down big. That was my way of dealing with it. So you, at yeah. this point, you still believe the Jehovah's Witness doctrines of Armageddon. You just felt that you didn't want to actually be a part of that religion. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah, I I totally thought Armageddon was still coming. I just thought I just can't live forever with these. I, you know, I don't want to be a part of this. Um, I know that sounds crazy when you think of all the things we were promised that would. You know, why would you not want that? But it just in to my core, mm. that was not what I wanted. So I just thought, well, I'm just gonna t- I'm going to roll a dice. Really, that's what I'm going to do. Um, mm. And I think because you, or because I believed Jehovah reads hearts, he knows that I'm not into this, so I'm not going to get through anyway. Mm. That's an interesting secret dynamic inside the mind, isn't it? Everybody's, you're doing so well, you're going to be an elder and, you know, you're going to do this. And inside your mind, you're thinking, well, I'm not, it's all pointless because I'm not going to, I'm not going to get through anyway because he knows and I know that mm. I'm not really into this, you know? Um, so yeah, that was my, that was my approach to it afterwards. It's just like, okay, let's, let's get busy dying, I suppose. Um, but the weird thing was, as I say, my brother was the one that invited me out on the town for a drink. Um, the first time. And I genuinely thought he was going to, you know, say to me, you know, I can't talk to you anymore. You know, you're, going to be disfellowship now and blah 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 um but as it turns out he, he was signposting me to this kind of world in plymouth in devon where the clubs were and the bars and he literally pushed me off down the road and said there are it's all down there mate you know i've got to go i'm going to the meeting tomorrow you know wow. <laughs> and that was that was probably the thing that saved my life ultimately at that point, because I couldn't have a conversation with him about suicide at that point. Um, I wasn't that open or comfortable with feelings like that. Um, And so that night I met somebody that I knew vaguely and and that group of people took me under their wings. So that's how I ended up in that scene. Um, And, uh, you know, regularly uh, involved in that scene. Yeah. Because this is um, this is during the 1990s, isn't it, when um, sort of clubbing and club music was really starting to come into its fore uh, in the UK. I think if you were if you're a certain age, I think in the 1990s in, in the UK or certain parts of Western Europe, um, you'll probably remember. Even if you were a JW and you weren't going to clubs, um, if you're listening to this, you'll probably be aware of how much of a thing clubbing was. Um, and so we, had you been much interested in kind of the clubbing scene before you started to get into it or was this kind of your first, ex- your first inroad into that? Um, no, I'd, I'd had no interest in the clubbing scene as such. Um, 
I, 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 actually, you've just brought something back to me that I'd completely forgotten. Um, when I was uh, auxiliary pioneering, I used to get up at three o'clock in the morning to go in to clean the escalators at Marks and Spencers, the uh, department store. And um, at that time of the morning when I would be having breakfast, there was a thing on telly during that time called The Hitman and Her. Uh, and that okay. was that was filmed at nightclubs all over Ritzy nightclubs all over the UK. Um, so my only kind of knowledge of what was going on in clubs at that time was through that filter <laughs> of the Hitman and her with Michaela Strachan and and some other guy on. So I you know I I kind of had that very uh, one channel view of what nightclubs were like. It was very yeah very Ritzy type yeah like, yeah. But um, no, I, I had no interest in club music. I had no interest in clubbing. Um, I had a, a very big interest in music. I played guitar and, you know, had a vinyl collection and so on. And so that, you know, music was the only kind of thing that was familiar to me when I went out there. And I liked what I, you know, uh, in some of the clubs, I liked what I was hearing. In some of them I didn't, and hence that's the the story of how the past splits on my journey, you know? And so you end up, um, cause one of the things I actually wanted to talk to you about, cause you ended up um, spending some time as actually a DJ working in, in clubs, didn't you? Uh, yeah. Very, very soon after leaving I did. Yeah. Okay. Um, so how, how, how did you get into that? Cause um, I imagine that there's a lot of, a lot of sort of ex GOWs who leave and maybe they've got a passion for music. And as a Jehovah's Witness, they were never allowed to sort of view that as a career option or something they could get involved with. But now they're kind of, they've left and they're thinking, you know what, music is something I want to do. I want to get into this. How did you sort of get into that, that DJ scene? And would you have any advice for anyone who's thinking of getting into it? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, I think the world is a much different place now, obviously, with the advent of, because uh, obviously in it was pre-internet, pre-social mm. media, pre-any type of online presence. That just didn't exist, you know. Mm. Um, and so my way of getting in, although, you know, if somebody wanted to be in that kind of life, I guess it would work. Uh, but my way was just being invited to uh, be a part of the uh, the periphery, you know, like doing the mm. lights or the smoke machine and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and then just being, I, I was in the club six nights a week, you know, um, mm. once I decided, and once I met these people, and I, I was there every night except Sunday nights. Um, so when I was in there so much, it, it was logical that I'd start messing around with the decks and stuff. Um, mm. I think if, if people are looking to get into that kind of thing now, um, probably a more healthy route in, um, because there's a lot of negativity, you know, with that lifestyle. A more mm. healthy route, I think, would be to focus on the musical aspect, uh, making music and producing music, and then, you know, maybe going to local bars and venues to perform that music live or even DJ and incorporate some of that music. But ha have the music as the calling card. Um a, that works better for social media uh, because you can share your music and build a following. Um, but also, I think it probably gives you a much more positive focus than just going out and getting smashed six nights a week. 
um, mm. because incidental to my um, becoming a DJ, I was also getting arrested, getting drunk, getting into fights, putting my fist through windows, all you know, all sorts. Mm. And that is not... Uh, that that was just this inner angst and rage coming out of me in a situation where I was unable to uh, control it once you add alcohol into that situation. And I was very depressed during that period as well. Mm. So my advice would be, yeah, go for it, but do it using the music as a vehicle because that is a much more positive introduction to that world and that scene. Yeah, sort of, sort of going, go, going also with like with your eyes open, aware of what some of the dangers that can exist in that that scene, and sort of like focus on the music rather than the partying, as it were. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, um, you can't ever regret anything you've done because it ultimately, whatever you've done in life, it's got you to where you are today. And if today's a good place, then you know, then that route mm. is a good route. Um, but I can't. Um, overestimate how much adding alcohol in extremes to the mental conditioning and the damage caused by the Jehovah's Witness experience, the two are not really, it's not a good mix, you know. Um, And I was anesthetizing myself uh, and then in that kind of state, all the stuff was coming out. It's not. A, it's not a controlled way of dealing with those feelings and those emotions. Um, yeah, especially because you still felt at this time that you were going to die at Armageddon. So yeah. everything around you is temporary. Yeah, um, and every, everyone you know is going to die, and you've got all that mm. pressing on you. So you've got that mix of kind of all that 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 pain and that anger and that rage, and you've also got all the alcohol, and you're also in an environment where there's a lot of people, you know getting smashed and that's part of the culture and all of that for you at this time is kind of taking you down quite a toxic path. Yeah, very much so. And I, I think um, people, I think people, if they were coming out at the moment and they're listening to this and thinking, you know, I, what I want to do, what do I want to do? I think, great, yeah, you know, get involved. You've got to have a social scene. You've got to get mm. a support network together very quickly. Um, yeah. And you've got to have something... Uh, that you can focus and channel those emotions into, um, be it music, be it poetry, yeah. be it performance, be it art, painting. Um, one thing I, my experience has taught me is that creative art is a great therapy, uh, particularly mm. if you're able to uh, then start voicing and sharing those emotions in a controlled way. Um, mm. Yeah. Could so. you could you d- describe us a little more with that? Because obviously you were in you were in this place of being very um, unable, sort of very unable to express what you were feeling healthily, and you've sort of transitioned now to a point where kind of you know healthily expressing what you feel and your experience is kind of you know a lot of what you actually do um, professionally. Um, so how did that transition take place from the, you know, the version of you that was kind of on this downward spiral to the version of you that's, that's standing here now that's kind of got that, that healthy ability to kind of analyze your, your, your experiences through, through the artistic lens. Um, what I'm going to say now is my truth and not in any way, uh, an endorsement 
for the behaviour that changed my situation. Um, I just want to make that really clear. Um, but I was, I'd got to such a low point with the drinking um, in terms of, my, you know, the violence, losing my driving licence, losing a job, um, uh, like a really good DJ job by that point, maybe five or six years in, I was earning, easily earning a £1,000 a week at that point. Um, that uh, I ended up in a situation, and I won't say too much just because it's, the play, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Um, it was actually taking ecstasy that changed my path, um, and the history behind that drug MDMA is that it was officially uh, its kind of start out point was designed to deal with depression and mental trauma, mm. and inadvertently that's what it did for me um and i stopped drinking overnight Uh, wow it was instantaneous i I had that first pill experience and it was such a contrast to the alcohol experience it i felt love and empathy for people around me everybody was on the same page i felt part of something beautiful And this is the very subtle, if you like, the very subtle um, crossover, the synergy between the religious experience and the ecstasy experience. They're very deliberately mirrored in my play because that's how I felt. Suddenly I felt a oneness, a connection, a part of something. Um, Conversations were about positive, beautiful things. Um, And... Also, I felt a total rejection of who I'd become. I saw myself Mm. through a different lens. Um, And that was the turning point. The caveat to that being, I am not suggesting that people (laughs) in that situation should go out and start taking drugs, obviously, because it's... Mm. A, it's illegal and can get you into a lot of trouble. Uh, um, but B, it's still not uh, guided. It's still not mm. a guided way. I mean, for me, I think I was so far down one route that I needed something huge to kick me another way. Mm. Um, ultimately, I went too far with that as well. And that's when I then started having to rethink my approach to my problem but i did it with a much broader understanding of my own feelings and th- and that was the chemically kind of triggered thing a sense of understanding of who i was a sense of positive reaching for for answers so is you know that's that uh, is what it is um, but to answer your question that that was how it changed yeah, it's it's interesting actually. I've been reading up about um, quite a few clinical studies that have been done um, uh, with people who have extreme depression or other issues, of, uh, trying to sort of gently treat them with like measured doses of MDMA or other chemicals um, to try and impact that. And there's there's a lot of interesting work going on in kind of the medical use um, of those compounds to try and actually 
help people uh, who may have, you know, depression or other issues. And like you say, that's all going on. In, that's going on in controlled medical, um, you know, measured and guided ways. Yeah. So we're not advocating that people go off and just start ingesting substances at all. Um, but it, 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 it's, it's interesting to note that the, that research is going on. So it does kind of, kind of sort of jibe with what you were saying there, that that experience kind of, it, it kind of gave you the, that moment of almost of self-realization. That, that's exactly it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, the, it's not just MDMA that, you know, like natural substances like psilocybin and ayahuasca, mm. DMT, the nature gives us these things, uh, and and they do the same thing, and uh, you know I think it's it's not just true of MDMA; it's true of psilocybin, magic mushrooms, for, by want of another phrase, uh, mm. that that they are experimenting with those, and they're having great success in curing people from heroin addiction, alcoholism, um, manic depression. Um, so you know it, it's interesting that we live in a paradigm where all those things are banned. Um, mm. you know, and that's another whole debate that probably we don't have time for today. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was, that was the swing for me. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you're in that state now. Um, so at what point did you, what, what path did you go after this? Cause obviously what path did you decide, okay, I want to take my experience and actually build, um, a stage play around it. Was that your first foray into, into stage writing or had you been, moving into a more kind of performance space um, before that? So um, post my period of then going too far with the chemicals, uh, I had a period of abstinence. Um, okay. Complete abstinence. Three years, no drink, no chemicals. Um, I was celibate, single for three years, all, you know, completely by design. I just thought, okay, I need to do some work. You know, I can't keep um, hiding and uh, and and just covering and burying this stuff. So I, I had this period. Uh, I stopped going to clubs. I stopped socialising with the group that I was with. And I kind of found myself in that situation again of being alone in the world, but in a much healthier place. And so rather like that first night out with my brother, when I went wandering off down Union Street in Plymouth um, on my own, uh, I kind of looked on social media and thought, I, you know, what's going on? And I saw this night that was advertised, which was a poetry night at a local theatre on the Barbican and uh, run by an organisation called Apples and Snakes in the UK who do fantastic workshops and, and you know, events. If anybody's interested in getting into that kind of thing, you can find them. It's applesandsnakes.org, I think, or .org.uk. Um so I went along to this night and uh, it was run by somebody that I knew. So that's, that kind of helped. And I, I took along another friend of mine, Sebastian, and uh, who was horrified when I told him that we were going to a poetry night. <laughs> <laughs> but I said to him, like, you know, let's just give it a moment, you know, it'll, yeah. it'll be fine. Uh, and, and the first act got up and it, we were blown away. It wasn't like anything we thought it was going to be. We thought it might be a bit pretentious, a bit chin strokey, maybe a bit unrelatable, but this new wave of spoken words is really, really powerful. Mm. Um, much more kind of uh, contemporary, urban, flowing kind of style, um, not at all old fashioned, and actually 
case in point by I think the third verse of the first poem my friend Seb who'd knocked the whole idea was was, was visibly emotionally moved you know tears and all mm. um and, and we just and the headliner for that night was a poet called Buddy Wakefield now he's five times world champs a slam champion uh and and just you know a legendary figure and and so 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 good at what he does so with him as the headliner and these other supporters i I came away just thinking wow that was a real experience you know and uh, all on soda water (laughs) So, (laughs) so when i got home i thought do you know what i used to love poetry uh, when I was at school, I can remember winning a competition, uh, kind of in you know the secondary school, and so I, and and I wrote this poem. It kind of came very easily, and I sent it to the woman uh, Katie, who was uh, hosting the night, and she immediately came back on Facebook and said, "Wow, I didn't know you was a poet. That's amazing. I, I love it. You're on next month." um so here i am again like plunged headfirst into something hello deep end yeah exactly (laughs) and she gave me a quarter of an hour set the following month i had one three minute poem and so over that month i wrote more poems until i had 15 minutes worth of poetry and obviously using the proper theocratic school method of practicing and timing and (laughs) you know and um and i will say this that stuff that we learn actually has held me in very good stead so Mm. not everything is a negative it's easy to jump on the negatives all the time um you know but yeah i was not nervous too nervous about getting up on that platform at the theater i knew how to use a mic <laughs> i came across very professional i can tell you uh, and you know i have i will thank uh, the theocratic ministry school for that publicly <laughs> um yeah and that was it that was it i was off um so me being me it wasn't long before i, ha- I was i launched a new light in plymouth and and had um people coming down as guest de- uh, guest DJs, guest poets, um, and, and just developing my own style. And I started entering slam competitions, winning slam competitions, ended up at the Royal Albert Hall in London last year for the UK um, slam finals, uh, which I didn't get through to the final, but I really enjoyed the whole experience. So that was the poetry side. And then I went to Edinburgh in 2016 for the Edinburgh Fringe, could um, you just explain to us for our for our listeners what the Edinburgh Fringe is? Because this is this is a very famous festival in the uh, in the arts and creative world, but uh, people worldwide might not have heard of this fringe before. So, could you give us just a quick summary of what the Edinburgh Fringe is? Of course, yeah. Um, so, the city of Edinburgh in Scotland is basically taken over for the entire month by comedians, theatre makers, poets, performers, street performers. Uh, the size of the city swells from its standard size to uh, 1.5 million people for that month. Um, you literally cannot move on the streets. It's a carnival atmosphere. It's incredible. Um, it's really a must-do, you know, in life. Put it on your list to do. Um, what you will find is 2,500 shows every day. 
wow. happening from about 10 in the morning till, you know, uh, through to the early hours of the following morning. There are two and a half thousand shows a day. Um, so that's the scale of it. it. It's like nothing else I've mm. ever experienced, you know. Um, so I went along with the idea of seeing what it was all about. I'd, I'd kind of heard about it through the comedy and so on. I'd always wanted to go. And uh, I went along and I, um, interestingly, the second thing that uh, coming to good stead for me is um, I went flyering for other shows. So basically, you know, street witnessing, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Approaching people in the street and, you know, selling them in 30 seconds the concept of the show. Uh, not taking no for an answer. I mean, it's everything you could dream of. <laughs> nice, yeah. It's um, like it's yeah. all these all these kind of poacher turned gamekeeper JW skills. Yeah, out. yeah, absolutely. I was a ninja at it as well, and uh, consequently, the last two years have been really sought after and, and earned quite a lot of money and got my festival funded by doing this flyering work three or four hours a day and then seeing shows. You know, the rest of the day, mm. and I I saw. Um, uh, I'd seen a show by a guy called Rob G um, called Forget Me Not, which was um, or is a verse play um, about uh, an, it's an Alzheimer's who done it. So it's set. Okay. Yeah, it's setting in a nursing home with characters that are suffering Alzheimer's, and um, a murder happens, and then it's a who done it. But obviously the 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 guy is a retired detective and he has Alzheimer's. So there's all kinds of, it's fraught with all kinds of problems. And I just found it amazing. There was this guy doing seven characters on his own on stage for an hour uh, using a mixture of poetry and narrative. Um, it was, I'd never experienced anything like it. And I was like, wow, now this is taking the whole thing to an, the next level. I want to do this. Um, and I saw more shows in Edinburgh like that. Luke Wright um, was an, uh, another guy that does very similar verse play type um, format. Uh, and so, I, you know, I came away from there thinking, OK, I'm, I'm going to write a show. And that's going to be my target now. So th that's what started me off writing an hour show. But I'd never done anything like that before, no. I mean, up to that point, I'd done a 15-minute set reading from a book <laughs> cool. so it, was quite an it was quite an ambitious thing then to sort of transition from the 15 minute set to sort of you're gonna write the whole show did you how how did you go about writing it was it did you know instantly what your your show was gonna it was gonna be about that that experience you'd had leaving the jw's and then kind of having that 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 moment of realization was that the first idea that came to you or did you have some other ideas for that show first i wrote a poem called one foot in the rave mm. when i when i thought about doing the show i looked at the poem and i thought oh it'd be really cool to maybe break that poem into sections and do a whole show about rave culture mm. i use ableton live um something we haven't touched on is that i'd become a music producer during the rave period as well um so mm. I, I, you know I'm, I'm proficient with a studio and i can make noises um some of them are nice so <laughs> i thought um it'd be good to mix the two that was the initial concept um 
And I was working with that idea and really, to be honest with you, getting nowhere fast. Mm. Um, You know, I kind of couldn't quite see a clear way to do this. And I had a couple of experimental ideas that just, I just didn't like them. And then I was supporting a poet called Attila the Stockbroker who came down to Plymouth and a friend of mine, Tom, invited me to do a warm-up and Attila uh, came to stay with me and we ended up sitting up all night and I told him this story. It was kind of an interesting thing for both of us, really, because he was in the punk scene, I was in the rave scene. Uh, To him, the rave scene was what killed the punk scene. So it was very... We were very engaged with the whole subject, but I started at the beginning and told him the whole story from the Jehovah's Witness experience onwards. And after about four hours of of talking, you know, he looked at me and he said, so that's your Edinburgh show, right? Tell me that that's your Edinburgh show. And the light bulb came on. I was like, of course it is. Why didn't I think of that? Probably because I had some feeling of shame or, you know, I don't want people to know that. I I kind Mm. of want to do the cool thing and talk about DJing, but it makes total sense Mm. to do this show. Um, So that's why I then re-approached the idea with the idea of it being the transition and the story. And then it just flowed. Um, And I wrote an early version which I sent to my editor, Tina, uh, said at home, is an incredibly talented poet and editor. Um, and she sent it back and said, hey, you know, yeah, that bit's great, that bit's great, but maybe, you know, do this, do that. Um, and so I reapproached it from a, a screenplay perspective. I'd read a book on screenplay writing and I took all the, the beat points of a screenplay and put them into this show and, and rewrote it and kind of mapped it out and, and sent it back to her and she said yeah that's it brilliant you've got it so that was the show I wrote that from January to March last year in Spain um, I was staying over there for a few months and uh, and then I came back and I'd had I had my first date booked at the Plymouth Fringe uh, which was at a theatre the Barbican Theatre actually the one that I'd been to all that time before uh, and it's you know, lo and behold, it sold out a um, hundred people. So I then had from March to May to learn it, and I locked myself away in the basement of my house and just presented <laughs> it to the walls. No director, mm. no stage understanding, no understanding of how to be an actor, um, and just kept trying things that I thought might work, but too shy to do it in front of everybody or anybody to get any feedback, but got to do it to a hundred people in May. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and that's what I did. And it was terrifying um, on, you know, on the night kind of the audience, there's no feeling like people just filing <laughs> in and filling up seats and, and any kind of cockiness about, Oh, that's all right. I've used a microphone before. It was way out the window by this point. I can tell you, um, <laughs> all I was thinking is what have I done? This is either going to go really well and I'm going to love it, or it is going to be singly the most excruciating, embarrassing situation <laughs> for everyone in the room. And I'm going to disappear never to be seen again. Um, it went okay. And it won an award <laughs> actually. <laughs> so, you know, that was just the endorsement and the encouragement and uh, that I needed. 
really mm. to spur me on and, and so I fully embraced that and um and and then started booking more shows and and building it up ready for mm. for the you know kind of a bigger tour and that that's kind of where I find myself yeah. today is in the process of producing and putting together this tour yeah uh, and performing of course I've got dates already but it's quite a lot to do all of it um, yeah. So where are you? Where are you touring at the moment? Because you're you've got you're, you've got like a, a series of dates planned out, haven't you? And I think did you say you're going to the Edinburgh Fringe again? Yeah, I'm doing a full uh, month this year. Yeah. Last year I did a sample run of eight nights just to give myself the experience. I come across as being very oh, I can do anything, but I'm, I'm really not like that. Mm. Um, and I was wise enough to realise, having been flying at Edinburgh Fringe Festival, that you don't. I should probably shouldn't go even do a whole month without the experience. So I thought mm-hmm. I'll book eight nights and see how it goes. And and yeah, that went well. So really the focus from there was, okay, let's build a tour, including a full month of Edinburgh. And that, that I'm booked into that at the end of this year. Uh, in June, I'm doing the North Devon Fringe Theatre Fest. Um, I'm doing the Morecambe Fringe. I'm doing the Theatre Royal in Plymouth, which is fantastic. And then Edinburgh full month. And then I'm in Leicester and Loughborough. I'm upstairs at the Western in Leicester in September and Loughborough, um, uh, the Blue Monkey in Loughborough the week after. And at the moment, those are the dates that are firm. Um, But I'm, you know, I'm trying to fill out the Midlands and the Southeast. The the thing that I found is there's been such a wonderful response. And I have to say, um, when I was in Edinburgh last year and I did my seven nights, a lot of people came because they'd been to see Daniel's film. Um, oh, apostasy. Yeah. Yeah. And um, they saw the flyer. Um, I've changed the flyer slightly in the in the blurb that you read. It said Evangelist Preacher, but I, I, I do actually name Jehovah's Witnesses now. Okay. Um, and um, that connection obviously dropped. Um, we did a little bit of flyering at Daniel's uh, film showing in Edinburgh mm. and, you know people came down and so um yeah that that's great that Daniel did that work because I think it's really opened the door for discussion and I've, yeah a lot of people have come to the show and said hey you know we're really interested in this a lot of people equally have come to have a go at me um, really saying that you know advocating rave culture and drug taking and you know, and they feel that the imagery is blasphemous on the flyer. Um, so, you know, ah, there's there's two okay. schools of people that come. Mm. Um, but everybody so far that has come along to the show has left with a positive experience. I'm sure there'll be at some point somebody's probably offended by the uh, <laughs> by the flyer, which is... Because <laughs> um, on the flyer, if I just describe it, is that the one you're talking about where they've got the picture of... Um, it's it's the artwork. I don't know the artist of the... It's uh, Jesus reclining in a crucified position, but he's got the kind of um, the ecstasy smiley face. Yeah, it's, a, it's basically a Renaissance painting. But there's, okay. there's lots of layers to why I chose this. Mm. There used to be a club night called Renaissance that used to use that style of painting on their album covers. So that's an oh, in okay. that's an in reference for people that know mm. the culture. Also, there's a dove in that painting, and doves were one of the first pills. So you know, there's lots of mm. little subtle ins that I thought were just very clever. But obviously, yeah. somebody just looking at it just found it offensive. That's completely fine. You know, people can find offensive what they want. Yeah. But the idea of the uh, the the happy the acid house face, the yellow acid house face, the smiley over Jesus's face, um, 
it's it's not meant to be provocative in that sense, but it's just that kind of, you know, we wear many faces when we're seeking redemption, mm. you know. Um, and if you wanted to go a le- level deeper, then the idea of Jesus being a white Westerner, which is what he is in that painting, mm. is ridiculous. So, you know, that's a cartoon and there's another cartoon layer on it. What's the real kind of what's the real situation you know and the real situation is the journey we have with ourselves and that ultimately is what the play is about well that's what it's interesting we're talking about that one of the things i learned i mean when i was a jehovah's witness i was i was very easily offended by art that i considered blasphemous and one of the one of the kind of the joys i've discovered in leaving is if you if you you know your reaction to artwork is something you should analyze and if you do find something offensive well maybe try and find out what was the art you know what was the artist trying to do what's he trying to convey what what are the layers going on you know why am i offended by this you know can i use this as an insult into how i as a, an insight into how i react to things and it's and one of the little, as a, as a slight digression, one of the wonderful things I've, since leaving the Jehovah's Witnesses, I feel free that I don't have to analyze art now through a very narrow lens of what isn't, isn't acceptable. You're free to kind of like really engage with, mm. with art as it's presented on this wide spectrum. I mean, your reactions are still okay because, like, you know, ultimately it's always, art is always a subjective medium. But you really are, you really are kind of free to yeah. engage with things in a way that as a Jehovah's Witness, when you're told, well, this is right, this is wrong, this is blasphemous, this is forbidden, um, th- that, that very narrow corridor kind of opens up into this wide landscape. Yeah, you're absolutely spot on. I mean, good art is supposed to evoke a reaction. It doesn't mm. necessarily follow that, that reaction in you should always be positive. Mm. Um, and I think you're right. If you have a negative reaction to something, that is perfect because the artist is asking you to look at you yeah why like you said why do you feel like that what is your preconditioning or your belief structure i mean the thing is we live in an echo chamber social media society now all we're looking for is likes Mm. shares retweets endorsements positive little hearts on your instagram um and that isn't how the world is Mm. you know um so yeah art should be divisive and we have the right and it's perfectly okay to be offended you you know you've nailed a very important point there is if we are then Mm. why is that the case is what i'm feeling actually a real feeling or is that feeling that a feeling that somebody's told me to have or i just believe to be the case have you have you had many xjw's attend the um the um performances uh, and if so have you got any feedback from them what have they said yeah in fact a whole group came on the last night in edinburgh including my parents of course ah i was going to ask you about this yeah a guy um called nick up in edinburgh arranged an ex-jehovah's witness meetup at that event and it was great and i you know it's one of the things I want to do moving forward and, and one of the things I'm really excited to talk to anyone who is interested in this concept is I'd like to do some workshops in towns with ex-Jehovah's Witnesses and anybody who feels like they've been a victim of coercive control of any kind. I'd like to do creative workshops and and have a time and a space where I can spend more time interacting because post-show is a really difficult time. 
you're on you have an adrenaline crash you've just had a very high level of anxiety for an hour so it's not always the best time to meet people is what i'm saying um mm. <laughs> i have done a q and a uh, a few shows and that's been really nice um, because that's kind of like giving a little decompression. I'm really interested in talking to anybody who who's interested in putting a show on in their town mm. um, uh, with maybe a creative workshop or some kind of workshop facilitation um, in order to uh, that people can come and express their stories. Yeah, one of the things that's very healing for ex-Jehovah's Witnesses is to talk to other ex-JWs about experiences. And, and one of the amazingly positive things we're seeing is that there is more and more media and film and and art related towards the XGW or the JW experience. I mean, uh, Daniel's film, Apostasy, um, has, has had a huge response from, from XJWs, I think, not just because it is kind of educating the general public on, on some of the, the issues that the JW doctrines raise, but also just because it's it putting that experience out there that people can relate to. And I think people find it very healing and very affirming and very cathartic. And I'm sure the same is true when a former Jehovah's Witness um, sees, sees your performance and sees your play. That same resonance of like, I've had these experiences, I've felt these things. That's, that's what I've gone through too. And for some people, it's the first time they've ever seen that from another person. And, and that ability to talk to other people who've gone through the same thing and have that that experience, you know, and also see sometimes see the little differences in experiences as well. Um, it's an incredibly, I think, a very healing and cathartic thing for former Jehovah's Witnesses. I think, again, we live in a world now where connection and communication is a lot easier. And I think it's wonderful. I mean, I've only recently discovered all of the XJW forums and uh, and so on, largely because mm. I started to hear my father and my brother talking about them as they went through their process m- much more recently. And, yeah, I mean, obviously that's a fantastic thing that is available to, to people nowadays, but you can't be that more intimate kind of one-to-one or one-to-group energy and dynamic where where people can feel like they have more uh, opportunity to really connect with people and they're not just part of the whole noise that's going on. Um, and I think it is important to remind ourselves about the echo chamber as well because, you know, it could be, it, it's very easy to go all into something else that you've got to expose yourself mm. to all kinds of scenarios and situations where you can really test and, and you know get to know what it mm. is that your your true core is all about. Yeah, and I think also um, I think one thing that hearing you speak about your your own experiences is one thing a former an ex Jehovah's Witness needs to bear in mind, especially if they've just left, is they're even if they don't realise it, they're probably carrying quite a lot of damage and quite a lot of emotional pain and stress and rather than ignoring that or like you say trying to like drink it or partying it away as soon as possible try and you know there's there's counseling there's therapy there are ways to process those emotions healthily and i think because i know from my own experience of leaving i thought i was fine and it's only Mm. it's only in the last couple of years i realized actually i kind of wasn't fine i had a lot of stuff i wasn't dealing with and the stuff i wasn't dealing with was actually starting to get quite quite unpleasant and toxic and so i've now i've started to deal with things and i'm feeling a lot better but i think that's listening to the kind of the journey you went through 
you obviously were carrying all this damage and it wasn't until you were able to have that self-realization and start to process what you were going through that you really started to heal from the experience. It, yeah, absolutely. It wasn't until um, I met some people, uh, or specifically two people in the rave scene that were a little bit older than me. Uh, I'm the oldest child in, in our family. Um, and so to have an older brother figure people that were doing very well with their lives and um, actually opened the door to uh, self-analysis. Um, I was given a book called Awareness by Anthony DeMello, which is a really, really powerful book. It was the first time I'd started talking about spirituality again and uh, talking about sense of purpose and you know what is all this about and mm. actually taking that lid off again which is actually kind of another turning point is like when you start to think oh my goodness i'm not slipping back into yeah because for me you go through a curve of i went out and then i was like no there, there is no god there is nothing you know we're all doomed it's just evolution get over it kind of thing you know through to you know kind of that I'm not really having a good time here. Mm. Something needs to change through to why is it that this is happening? What is experience all about? What is reality? What is consciousness through to maybe there's something higher, you know? <laughs> um, and I, and I don't mean uh, necessarily, uh, you know, the idea of a monotheistic culture or, or, uh, you know, um, a God or anything like that. But, you know, this is happening to all of us at the same time. It's about something. And, you know, that, that kind of process does open up very interesting pathways again. You're like, okay, so, you know, um, I'm I'm here, and there's about you know probably twenty five thirty years of usable life left from, from where I'm standing. So, what am I going to do with that? And mm. you know, that, that's the process I now find myself. Uh, in. That's interesting to hear you say that because there's uh, a previous podcast myself and Alice Cheshire. We were discussing some of the factors involved in people who report subjective happiness. So people who's who in, when they do sort of tests and interviews, the people who usually score the have the highest kind of yeah they feel happy or contented there's a number of factors in common and one of them is purpose people who feel that they have a purpose tend to score higher on a subjective subjective happiness and that's one of the things is like when you leave with the jehovah's witnesses you you had a purpose when you were a jw and then when you leave the temptation is to kind of yeah. think oh life is purposeless and pointless and what's the point and i think i'd agree it's really important to sort yeah. of analyze okay what like you say you, you've we've got we've all got a certain amount of time so what are we going to do with it how are we going to spend it where are we going to focus it because it's, it's even more precious now in a way if you if, if it's not everlasting life if it's only a few decades well, that's yeah. What are you going to do with it? Because you know the the most valuable thing you have is your time. You know, absolutely. And uh, you know, it's those realizations that really start to to focus your thinking and to stir your inner kind of emotions and really really make you evaluate. Time is one of the most important things. A sense of belonging is a natural human instinct you know that kind of pack instinct so who's my tribe and you know what is what is my role what is it i'm gonna do what is my core purpose and that's for me where art and creativity and music and writing those things are when i feel most me 
And I think, you know, that this is true of anybody, regardless of their history, ex-Jehovah's Witness or not. There's people that go through their life on the machine. They, they do school, they qualify, they do further education, they do the career path, they do the successful things all the way through to retirement. They give up work and then at some point after that they drop. Well, if their fulfillment is through that, that, that's fantastic. But there are lots of people who don't fit that traditional uh, or expected role path, you know. Um, and and that, that's, mm. you know, I find myself in that group. I literally cannot hold a job down. I've had more jobs than I can to remember. Um, <laughs> you know, so, so you know, how, how does one kind of find out who they are that's a very interesting challenge and and something that faces anybody regardless of their background but that that is the beauty of this experience we're having you know um and it's not always up you know you've got to experience um if you didn't have lows then how would you know highs you know the the dynamic range of your lowest low and your highest high might be different from person to person some people might live a very ambient kind of uh very gentle up and down uh, other people like myself might peak and trough at the extremes but you know um ultimately your sense of measurement is between those two points so um, you know, are you, have you had the best yet? Maybe not. You know, that's where I think art and music and and culture and and all those kind of ideas have really come into play. One thing that I really found useful that I was terrified of because of the whole programming of the demons thing um, is meditation. You know. A med- meditation is just ah, okay. essentially it's just stopping and thinking so it's pretty obvious why mm. it's not you know why it's frowned upon isn't it you know? <laughs> don't stop and think whatever you do don't let them think yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um but you know you know joking aside it that is something that is uh, can be as powerful as any uh induced experience in terms of um, switching off that noise and actually connecting with the real you. And I entered the idea of meditation with great trepidation because I thought I was instantly going to be possessed, of course. Um, you know, and, and of course yeah. you realise that um, that it's just not about that. Um, and yoga and breathing and meditation, for me, were far more powerful and helpful than any of the other experiences I've had, let's put it that way. Yeah, um, um, uh, a really healthy thing to do. I think that's actually um, it's just a sort of you, you, you've been very generous with your time, especially for someone who's who's currently uh, had a tooth ripped out. So I, I don't <laughs> want to keep you for much longer, but I would I would agree. I think we've mentioned on this this podcast before uh, meditation, um, breathing, and yoga. These things are I've personally found I haven't tried much yoga yet because I'm incredibly unflexible. But meditation, mm-hmm. um, I've been really getting into. I do um, some mindfulness meditation. I try to do it every morning. And yeah. it really is, and like you say, it's just stopping and thinking and being in the moment. And it you realize, yeah. for me especially, I realized how, how little I was doing that um, and actually how difficult it was for me to do it first. And it's almost like you kind of, um, it's like muscles that you haven't used for a very long time. You need to get them back into shape. But once you've done it, it's incredibly calming. 
And I can tell the days when I've been able to, to do it in the morning, I can tell I have a better day. Um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I would, I would say that that Anthony DeMello awareness book is a perfect book for any ex Jehovah's Witness to have a read of. It doesn't pull any punches, but it really starts that, um, idea of uh, of looking at yourself and and what you realize through meditation uh and you know turning that noise off we spend mm-hmm. our entire day on the back foot reacting to emotions and things that actually they're not really who we are yeah you know I, we're reacting to preconditioned um uh, kind of behaviors and so on and then we're going along with them Whereas if you can, I suppose the easiest way to explain it very quickly um, is just if you can learn to start looking at yourself as if you're a camera on the wall and looking at yourself and going, look look at him, why is he doing that? (laughs) That that kind of childish tantrum thing, you know, what's that all about? Okay, it's fine to let it run through you. It's a feeling, it's valid, but don't react to it. Mm. Yeah, I, I found that to be hugely beneficial. Highly recommended. (laughs) <laughs> like I said, you've been very, very generous with your time and um, especially with a missing tooth. If, if people want to find out more about you, um, where, where are you online? Where can they find out more about um, yourself and your show? Okay, yeah. Uh, so I'm on Twitter um, as at Joined Up Poetry and I'm on Instagram as Alexander Rhodes Poet, R-H-O-D-E-S. And uh, I do have a website as well, alexanderrhodes.me.uk. Um, and those are probably the best channels. I don't do Facebook. Hashtag one foot in the rave and hashtag XJW are the two tags I use about the show. So if you want to come along to the show, then those are probably the things that will help you find a show in your town or do you know what if you want to put a show on in your town and you're kind of into that kind of thing and you like promoting or you've got an interest in theater we can work on it together you know we can put we can put a show on in your town i'll come do it in your town and you know maybe get some other local poets or something involved to do a warm-up cool very open to all of that fantastic so uh alexander rhodes aka sean holland thanks so much for being on the show Um, Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks. Thanks.